This is the Senior Living Truth Series podcast, where we have candid conversations about complex issues facing today's mature adults. No sales pitch, only the truth. I'm Dr. Nikki Buckaloo. Welcome to the show. All right. You guys ready for today's topic? Really quick survey of the room. Uh, If there was one thing you came today wanting to learn or hear about or know as it relates to today's topic, what is it? Just shout it out. Uh, Changes. Changes in what specifically? And what's coming up for the registration this year. Okay, so you're talking about Medicare. Yes. Okay, so let me be really clear. So thank you for saying that. This is not a Medicare seminar. But we are going to address some Medicare issues, okay? Matter of fact, I have three guest speakers. Let me just bring them up right now. Uh, They're going to come up here in a few minutes and answer some questions. But right now, I just want you to see their lovely faces. And so you know who they are. Come up a little closer so that you're in the camera because we're recording this for future. So it's, it's forever. Once you're here with me, you're here forever. Ever and ever and ever. So Tracy Kane, um, you guys know uh, Curtis, who's been our education partner for a long time with our best, right? This is his better half, Tracy. Yeah. He, see, he really is married. I know a lot of you didn't believe it, but Tracy works for Select Specialty Outpatient. Say it. Uh, I'm with Select Medical and Select Medical Specialty Hospital, and then I just recently moved over to the Select Outpatient. Yeah. Okay, the reason that she's saying all this because she's changed roles with them. They keep giving her promotions, and uh, you know, so as that happens, she has to change titles. So I'm not confused about what she knows. I'm just confused about where she is today, right? So Tracy, when we do Q and A, is going to be able to speak to some of the issues I'm going to refer to today about healthcare options, where we can go, what some of our Uh, short-term hospital stay options look like, what our long-term hospital stay options look like, and she's going to be able to address a lot of those questions, okay? And then we have Alan. Alan is with us today from the Medicare Assistance Program with the State Insurance Department. Say hi to Alan. Yay! Some of you guys may know Ray Walker. Uh, Ray has been on panels with us before, and he delegated today to Alan because he said Alan's really better at this than he is. Yeah, absolutely. Better, better looking too. And better looking too. We got all of it, right? So Alan is one of the counselors at the state uh, insurance department on Medicare. And so when you call in and you ask to talk to somebody about Medicare information, they transfer you over to somebody like Alan who can speak to a lot of the questions people have about Medicare, either whether they're enrolling in Medicare or changing plans or they need to add a prescription plan, that kind of thing. He's not a salesperson. He's not an insurance agent. He is an educator, okay? Yeah, perfect. So Alan, we're glad you're here. And then Ben, my my good friend Ben, who's now a family member too, he married into our family and we're very grateful to that. Ben uh, drove up from Tulsa today. Uh, He works all over the state and also at Louisiana and some other places, yeah. So Ben actually is in the insurance business and Ben, when I asked him what company should I tell people you're with, he said, just tell them I'm Ben and I'm the Medicare expert. Right? Um, Ben's doing this for Ben Dennis now for almost a decade. Um, he's built a, a significant book of business, and the reason for that is that he takes good care of his people. He's like what we do. He's an educator first, and then a professional in the insurance business kind of secondarily. Right? That's how you get paid, but what you really love is educating. Yeah. So say hi to Ben. Okay. All right. And Alan and Tracy, you guys, I'll see you in about 30 minutes or so. All right. Good. Give them a round of applause, you guys. Okay, so I had to have experts 
experts in the room, guys, because obviously this is a big topic, right? And if you do any reading on this at all, uh, or any studying, what you're going to find is that uh, there is no way we could cover everything I wanted to cover today in 90 minutes' time, right? Agreed? So I was listening to, a matter of fact, I created this slide on the fly this morning because I was listening to a YouTube video with Dr. Atul Gawande, who's the author of um, Being Mortal. And uh, Being Mortal is a great, uh, yes, Being Mortal is a great book if you have not read it. Um, it's wonderful on the topic of healthcare and um, senior living as well as hospice and end-of-life care. Well, anyway, he said something. I went back and I wrote it down. He said there are 60,000 ways, they have documented 60,000 ways that our 13 organ systems can fail. Now, why do you think they have to have those documented? They have to have them documented so that hospitals, doctors, and medical people can have systems for dealing with all 60,000. Now, that's not a big job at all, right? And then he went on to say there are 6,000, and this was a couple of years old, so I put the plus sign. At the time he recorded it, there were 6,000 prescription drugs available on the market and 4,000 medical and surgical procedures that could be done to a human being. <clears throat> so the immensity of this topic, we're going to just touch on today, right? We're just going to touch on it. And I started thinking about that as I was writing our truths out. And you guys know I'm big on truths. And so that's where we're going to start today. So in your handout, you have a handout, front and back. And the front and back, the front has the truths on it. And by the way, those folks that I had standing up here, their names are also on your handout with their phone numbers. So you can go back and reference those. Okay. Um, but here are the truths, you guys. Uh, I'm just going to read through them, and I'm going to make comments on a few because I think that they're particularly important. But we're going to spend the majority of the time on the back of the handout. So truth number one, doctors and nurses are no longer the decision makers about what is medically necessary for a patient. Yeah. Insurance companies are. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Okay, and they are not happy about it, by the way. Doctors are not happy. I sent a message to one of my... Uh, friends who's a surgeon up in Oregon. She was from here in Oklahoma. They moved to Oregon. She's a general surgeon. And I sent her a message that said, can you give me some information about this topic I'm going to be speaking on? And I asked her some questions. And her message back to me said, I am quitting the business in January. She's my age. She said, um, I am so tired of being told what I can and cannot do in the name of medicine by people who are not in medicine that I've done. She's going to start selling children's clothes via consignment. Seriously. That's how she went through medical school, did, became a surgeon, not a doctor, a surgeon, and is now quitting. So that's how difficult it is for physicians right now during this transition that we're going through where they're no longer in charge. Um, most of them, I would say, when they went to school, thought they were going to be in charge, don't you think? Right. right? Okay. Number two, truth number two, more and more physicians are choosing not to accept new Medicare patients. Has anybody had that encounter? Okay, this is especially true if you're moving out of area or out of state, and you go, I need a new doctor. You need to call ahead because not all of them will take new Medicare patients. They may take Medicare patients but on their website or on your insurance portal, but then when you get there, they say, we're not accepting new Medicare patients. 
Choosing your insurance coverage is truth number three, sorry. Choosing your insurance coverage is very important and very individualized, and decisions should not, underscore not, be based on price alone. Um, this is one of those areas where cheaper is not always better, right? And so as you're looking at the cost of insurance, I'm not an insurance salesperson, I have no skin in the game on this, but here's the deal, we all want things to be cheaper, right? But at what cost do we want them to be cheaper? What are the trade-offs? So you have to be asking questions about the trade-offs for things that are like free. When you hear the word free, what comes to mind? Free until when is my question, right? What, what's the trade-off for free? Not that it's not a good thing, but you need to know what the trade-off is. Truth number four, all hospitals and care aren't equal. They are not equal. Hospitals, surgeons, and other doctors are rated based on key metrics. People, most of them, never look up the track record, <clears throat> excuse me, the track record of those they rely on for care. You know, guys, in real estate, we have to go out on these appointments to talk with people about possibly selling their home or buying a home, right? We interview with them. And they oftentimes interview multiple people, right? Not just us, they interview more people. They do more research on hiring a realtor than they do on the person who's going to cut their chest open. They do. So why is that? Why as consumers are we taking less care of the decision about who we're gonna hire to do surgery on us or which hospital we're gonna to go to than on the real estate agent who's gonna sell our house? I'll tell you why, and the banker said it best one time, standing at a bank, I may have told this story before, at the cashier's area, and this person came up, and after they walked away, both the cashier and myself just kind of shook our heads. I forget even what the conversation was about, but here's what he said to me. He said, I learned a long time ago that people are more concerned about their money than they are their health. And that was coming from the banker. So I'm just saying, they are not all equal. Matter of fact, I did a search. When I did this truth, I went online to Medicare.gov and I did a comparison of the three major hospitals that came up, so SSM, Mercy, and Integris, to see which one rated best. And they all rated pretty similarly until you got down into the categories of the ratings. And you start dropping down into who does a better job with heart issues, who does a better job. By far, Mercy is the better hospital to go to if you're having a stroke, unquestionably. How did you know that? I looked it up. How many of you have looked it up? to say to your spouse, if I'm gonna go to the hospital, if I'm having a stroke, take me to Mercy. Most of you would say, take me to the nearest hospital. Uh-uh, all things considered, I live right smack dab in between the middle of them, so they must drive miles and take me to Mercy. Right, by the way, that's where Dr. Smith works, the one that we all like so much. He's a good guy, right? Okay, truth number five, trying to navigate our options when we are healthy is much easier than when we are sick or recovering from being sick playing ahead. Um, I, I don't know about y'all, but <laughs> we've been doing this a long time now, like Naomi said, almost seven years. And there are a lot of you that are just now, after seven years of hearing me say you need to have your uh, advanced directives done, or just now getting them done. So I figure seven years from now, you guys will start um, doing some planning for when you're in the hospital. 
I, you know, all, all humor aside, um, the other thing Dr. Gawande said this morning was he said that the average human being will have eight surgeries in their lifetime. Eight. The average. That's the average. Eight surgeries in their lifetime. Now, I've already had three. So I've got five more to go to hit average. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, I've had 20. So you may skew the average one way. Others of you, I've never had a surgery. You skew. I'm talking averages. Okay. Truth number six. There is no one source of information that covers everything we need to know. <laughs> I've looked. Tracy, have you looked? How many sources do you have to go to just to find out information on one thing? A hundred sometimes, yeah. No one source. Truth number seven. Doctors make a living trying to keep people alive and well. They are not generally involved in the business side of healthcare. So when you're in the doctor's office and the doctor's saying, I want to prescribe you this or do that procedure, he has no idea if it will be covered by your insurance. Okay, that's somebody else's job. Okay, so obviously we kind of know that, that's given. Number eight, having advocates, advisors, and spokespeople in your corner is crucial to your level of care. Case in point, um, I'm going to read a story to you here in just a minute from one of my colleagues down in Georgetown. Uh, she and her husband just went through this, and if it had not been for their son, who is a uh, VP of a major not-for-profit hospital down there, um, they would have had a lot more problems. Uh, right now, my uncle's in the hospital, uh, my dad's brother, and he is uh, in and out right now with some pretty major medical stuff. And what I'm finding is that he only hears or understands or pays attention to, that may be the other issue, about every other thing that somebody says, right? Because why? When you're laying there in the hospital bed, you don't feel good and you got stuff going on and you got cords and wires and beepers and all the things, you cannot possibly take in everything that's being said to you, can you? And if they come in and they say it to you and you don't have anybody there when they say it to you, you're it. If you don't report it back to family, guess what? It may or may not ever happen. Medication errors, the number one reason for medication errors is typically because nobody brought their medication list with them to the hospital and the hospital didn't know that they were taking certain medications and so they did not issue them or they give them the wrong dosage and that kind of thing. And so if you don't have an advocate, somebody who can say, hey, here's what's going on right now with me, then 99% of the time they're shooting in the dark. Right? They're just doing the best they can. Number nine, you have every right to ask for what you want and to question your medical provider. Should I read that one again? Yes. You have every right to ask for what you want and to question your medical provider. Doctors are not God, despite their beliefs in that sometimes. It's getting better, I think. Doctors are less arrogant. Maybe. Some are. But they're smart people. Here's the thing. And they've been doing this a long time, many of them. And so what happens is they get in a routine, they get in a rut. You have the right to question what it is they want to do or are doing. Now, I noticed when my uncle, uh, we were in, in his room that day and we started asking questions. When you start asking questions, what happens? It takes 
time, doesn't it? So the more questions you ask, the more time they have to spend. And they're trying to get on to the next person, right? So one of the key, real key things is ask the right person the question. A lot of times it's not the doctor that knows the answer, it's who? The nurse. 99% of the time, the nurse is going to be the better source of information than the doctor. And sometimes it may not even be the nurse. It might be the physical therapist or it might be somebody else. So asking questions. Insurance companies have made it common practice to deny claims. Always file a dispute. I'm going to read a story for you real quick about a friend of mine. And this is not a um, slam or a slight against insurance per se. It's just a cautionary tale, that's all. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to read it to you now before we get into all these little incidentals I talked about on the next page. By the way, I didn't ask for this. Um, my friend Virginia does what I do down in Georgetown, uh, up just north of Boston, and she's doing the exact same topic right now in a room in Austin. And she is going to use, she said, I'm going to tell my story, and she sent it to me, and I said, can I tell your story too? She said, sure. So while my husband has struggled with back pain for years, he had surgery about 45 years ago or so with the intensity of the pain increased, when it increased. But in the mindset of grin and bear it, he continued on until July 8th of this year when he woke up in such excruciating pain he could not move. This was the beginning of what was to become a six-week journey through our health care and for me significant realizations about the administration of health care and insurance. That's Dawn, uh, the gentleman she's talking about uh, in the two pictures. I'm dancing with him. Those were taken two years ago at her birthday party. And that's Virginia, his wife, down there uh, at the bottom. For context, Dawn turned 90 in April. Except for his back, he was generally in good health, doing yard work, working on his classic Mustang, traveling, etc. We have Medicare Advantage, part of a benefits package. Considering all the marketing and all the bells and whistles announced in mailings from our Medicare Advantage plan, I assumed we had a great package and we would be well taken care of when we had medical needs. Planning for discharge almost immediately upon admission to a hospital was mind-boggling to me. There was no treatment plan. When I was told Dawn would be discharged to a skilled nursing facility, I was appalled. What happened to our wishes, our input? While skilled nursing facilities definitely have their place, I wanted him to have more intensive rehabilitation therapy than he would have received in a skilled facility. The decision by our Medicare Advantage plan, a decision made by someone who did not know him and had not seen him, was limiting Don's access to the care he needed at the time. Families do have the right to appeal, the right to ask for a higher level of care. We could request authorization for Dawn to be admitted to an IRF, which stands for a inpatient rehab facility. In our case, our Medicare Advantage would take up to 72 hours to respond. I would hear a follow-up comment from liaisons or social workers at the hospital, quote, the authorization will probably be denied. I couldn't understand why people were so negative. I called our MA, surely we would not have to wait 72 hours. Let's just say that phone, that phone call did not foster any confidence in the process. Our request for authorization to be admitted to the IRF was denied. On to level two, peer-to-peer, physician-to-physician review, another 72 hours or up to 72 hours. Once again, we were denied. On the third level of appeal, family appeal. My son prepared our appeal. 
In full disclosure, my son has a master's degree in healthcare administration and works in a not-for-profit health system. He's actually a VP. She's very humble. His letter challenged the denial of the appropriate level of care from a business perspective as well as a personal perspective. Once again, our request was denied. After a family appeal is denied, the request automatically goes to a third-party reviewer, Maximus. Maximus reviews all managed plan denials and has the authority to reverse the denial. Unfortunately, Dawn's Maximus appeal was also denied. Obviously, if you've been adding the hours and days for a response, we were way beyond the number of days allowed in the hospital to address acute care needs. Along the way, we had made the personal decision to resort to private pay for Dawn to receive the level of care he needed. Basically, there was a $6,000 check to the rehab place. A disheartening decision after paying into Medicare all these years and assuming we would be taken care of. When asked what would have happened had he been on original Medicare, the liaison replied that he would have been admitted to an IPR facility upon initial request. I want to make it clear that I'm not saying our story is true for all Medicare Advantage plans, but this was our experience with our particular plan and I've had it affirmed by some others in the industry. So here were her learnings. She gave me four of them. She said, know what your plan covers and the authorization process involved. Know the differences in the levels of care between inpatient rehabilitation and nursing facilities. Know you have the right to appeal and have not only an advocate, but a spokesperson to champion you and your rights. Now, do you think Dawn, her husband, who's just gone through major back surgery, is in any state of mind to be writing appeals or talking to insurance company? Who do you think did that? Her son. Because she was also in no state of mind to be calling and talking to insurance company. She was caring for him. Now, what she told me, and I've been talking with her off and on through their uh, hospitalization ordeal, and what she said was, Nikki, she said they tried to discharge him from the hospital, and she said, I'm, we're sending him home. And she said he couldn't get out of bed and walk to the bathroom. And they said, well, could he do that before he came into the hospital? She said he was mowing the lawn the day before he came into the hospital. Yes. Here's what they said. Well, he's 90. I said, did that really come out of somebody's mouth? And she said, yes. They assumed because he was 90, this was as good as he was going to get. They didn't know him when I was dancing with him, right? All they knew is how he came in from surgery. So, I got a picture, I don't have it on the screen, I got a picture from Virginia from three nights ago. Her goal for him this past week was to be sitting at a restaurant having dinner out. And they accomplished that. And so she said, Nikki, it was because we got him into rehab. If he would have had to go to a skilled nursing facility, and I hate using the F word, you guys know that, right? But basically he would not have gotten the therapy that he needed. Not to say that they don't provide good care, I'm not saying that. We have great places that do that, but he wanted physical therapy, and the only way he was gonna get that was by going to a place that that's what they do. And Tracy's gonna talk more about that um, when we finish up with the talk. 
So I share that with you, again, I, I'm not here to assert an opinion about insurance. I'm not. I'm here to say to you, you need to ask questions. If it's Ben you ask questions of, or it's Alan, but you have to know whatever insurance you choose, how does it work, right? So let's talk about what happens before you have a major health event, before you have a major health event. Here's how you look. Happy, 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 right? Taking my blood pressure, making sure my cholesterol is good. We're doing exercise, it's all good, right? You usually have a primary care physician. Uh, you have a what's called a regular doctor, right? Our regular doctor. And then you also have maybe a clinic that you go to possibly. But a lot of times, guys, these new clinics that are out there now, there's some of them that specialize in uh, taking Medicare patients. And so when you go to one of those clinics, or if you go to one of those clinics, or know someone who does, um, make sure that you ask them before you go what insurance you take. We all do that. That's They want to know what you have and you want to know what they take, right? I have been told, I cannot speak from personal experience, so this is hearsay on my part, that some of these clinics are trying to get people to change their insurance policies right there in the clinic. They have people on site to help you do that. Now, do you really think that's a good idea? When you're in the middle of a healthcare event, changing your policy, I'm guessing it's probably not. And then I also found out from uh, somebody that they're doing that at Walmart now. Like you can go to Walmart and they have booths set up for you to change your insurance during open enrollment. Does that sound like a good idea to you guys? Ben, are you at Walmart? Okay, good. I'm really glad. No. I think all my people are back here going, oh, Lord, have mercy, right? Walmart is not the place to make a decision about your insurance. Buy a chicken and get out. <laughs> so then you have specialists, right? Specialists. There's specialists, you name it, and there is an ist for everything, right? We know that. Now, there's also what we call geriatricians. Geriatricians are not um, something that you hear that word very often, but geriatricians are hard to find. But when you do find one that will take a new patient, then you should probably go and see them. What do they do? A geriatrician is somebody who specializes in working with people in older age groups that have multiple medication needs and complex healthcare needs. So these are people that, if you've got a disease process that requires you to take, they say 10 or more prescriptions for sure. Um, then you should probably be talking to a geriatrician because a geriatrician is looking at the bigger picture where when you're going to five or six different doctors who are all prescribing medications, they're not speaking to one another, right? A geriatrician is somebody who's trying to then take all that information and help you make decisions based on uh, all of those factors. Then you have, of course, urgent care. We all know about urgent care. Um, we also know about the hospital emergency department. What some of you may not know about, because this was new to me, is we have these freestanding emergency room departments, right? These emergency departments that are freestanding are sometimes owned by the hospitals, or they may be privately owned, but those are not the places you go if you're having a heart attack or a stroke. They want you to go to a hospital emergency room that has all of the bells and whistles, right? These are places you're going to go if you have, you know, cut your hand open and you need stitches, obviously, or you broke a leg or you have something like that. But if you have something that's going to require a major, some sort of a major treatment, then you probably are going to go to a, uh, a major hospital. So I'm going to call those the big hospitals, right? Those are the big hospitals. So Mercy, Integris, St. Anthony's, um, so on and so forth.
Now, these obviously have multiple levels of care. You have your regular room, you have your intensive care area, and then they have what I learned about, you may know about, it's called step-down units. How many of you are familiar with a step-down unit? Okay, so you go from ICU, and instead of going directly to a regular room, you go to what they call the step-down unit, which means you're gonna get a little more attention than you would in a regular room, but not quite as intense as intensive care. So it's an in-between uh, kind of space in the hospital. What's interesting is they throw these words around. You know, they said to my uncle, you know, we're going to put you on the step-down unit. I'm like, what are we going to do? Are you going to two-step? What is a step-down unit? And they're like, oh, you don't know what a step-down unit is. I'm like, how would I know what a step-down unit is? Right? So you have to ask the questions like, what are we doing there? Now, my question for them was when they moved him to the step-down unit, um, they, they said basically, you know, you're going to get all the same people, just maybe on more frequency. There's a higher level of frequency, or they have more monitors and that kind of thing. Tracy can speak more to that um, as we get going. And then, of course, you have ambula ambulatory surgical centers. I don't have a picture of those, but you guys know what they are, right? Um, McBride, you have uh, there's surgical centers all over town. If you have an outpatient surgery, and your doctor says, you know, I'm going to schedule you for outpatient surgery, or your surgeon says that, and they give you a choice, how many of you do the research to see how much it's going to cost you at the hospital versus the surgical center? Did you know you could do that? I did a little research, and did you know that if you have rotator cuff, no, I'm sorry, gallbladder surgery, you have your gallbladder removed, not emergency surgery, like you go in and they're doing it right then, but they schedule you for it, you will pay roughly twice as much to have that done at a big hospital than at a surgical center. Out of pocket, roughly twice as much. For rotator cuff, about the same. Uh, cataract surgery, it was about a third again as much at the hospital. So always more at the hospital than in a surgery center. Now obviously if you've got complications and things that the doctor thinks you need to be at the hospital, then you should probably be at the hospital, right? But how many of them are giving you the choice? Most of them are not, right? That's what I think is interesting. Did you know you can go online to medicare.gov or you can go to and you can compare the costs of having these procedures done? Uh, I forget what year it was. Tracy, you might know, was it 2019 or 20 when they made all this transparent where they're required to disclose? Yeah, they're required now. I thought this was so interesting. Do you know in real estate, before we can actually list or sell your house, we have to give you a full list of what it's going to cost you to do that. It's required by our state law. We have to give you an estimate of what it's going to cost you. And it wasn't until the last couple years that your doctor and hospitals are required to do that. They are required to give you an estimate if you are paying privately. Because you're going, I don't be getting an estimate. You know why? Because you're not paying privately. So if you go in and you say, I'm not going to bill my insurance, I'm going to do it private pay, they have to give you an estimate. Well, why shouldn't they have to give you an estimate if you're on insurance? I don't understand that. Well, because they really don't want you to know how much they're billing your insurance versus how much it would be privately. So I would love for somebody to secret shop. Next time you go in for a procedure, tell them, say, I'm going to pay privately. And they're going to look at you like, what? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to bill Medicare. I'm just going to pay out of my bank. I'd like my estimate, please. See what the charges are going to be, and then see what they really are when you bill your insurance. You know what I'm saying? Just 
Just have a little fun with it. I'm sure they'll hate me after this talk. <laughs> okay, so here's what it looks like in our minds when we have a major health event and we know we're going to go to the hospital and we think, okay, when I get discharged, that's how it's going to look. How many of you wish that's how it looked? Uh-huh. How many of you know that is not how it looks? Right? It kind of looks more like that. And for some of you, it looks like that. Right? We're not happy. We're not, we don't want to sign papers, but yet, lo, what are they doing? They're sticking papers in front of us to sign, aren't they? It was so funny. We, Chris had a little minor surgery done on his uh, esophagus. He was having some trouble swallowing, and McBride did a, I think, was it McBride? Wherever it was we went to have that done over at Baptist. And they had me come up to pick him up when they discharged him. It was an outpatient surgery. And I said, okay, so I came up, and the doctor's talking to me, and he's shaking his head back there. The doctor's talking to me, and he says, now, Ms. Buffalo, here's what you need to do, and so on and so forth. And Chris is sitting there, still heavily under anesthesia, and he's like, I got that somewhere. I got papers. I got papers here. If they're in that sack, and you can get them. And the doctor's looking at him, and he just ignores him, and he keeps talking to me. And I'm like, I got this. And he's like, well, somewhere here, Nikki, where, where's my wallet? I mean, and he is just blah, 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 right? And he thinks he knows exactly what he's doing. He still thinks he knew exactly what he was doing. And... The doctor knew he didn't know what he was doing, so he was talking to me. But guess what? If you don't have somebody there with you who is your advocate, your spokesperson, right, then you're the one that's having to sign off on stuff. Now, most of the time, they won't let you do that. You have to have somebody there, right? Or do you? What if you're being picked up by an Uber driver? Not a good idea, right? Okay. So, advocates. All right, so here's how it looks to me when I get home. That's how I feel when I get home from a procedure, right? Yeah, I don't want to have to make these decisions. But what happens um, when we get ready to go home? Okay, so here's what it looks like in our minds when they're creating a discharge plan for us. Tracy says these people are called social workers, caseworkers, or liaisons. There's lots of names for them, right? And as you discharge from the hospital, they bring out their little magic notebook and they whip up a discharge plan and they go, here you go, it's perfect, carry on. How many of you know that is an absolute lie? It's an absolute lie. Here's how it really looks. Okay? Sometimes that's how it looks. Because guess what? Sometimes what we think we would like and what we've imagined cannot be done. Right? Or in the time frame that we want it done. And so that's how it feels. It feels like the discharge planner is going, I don't know, right? This is how it really looks, right? <laughs> this is how most of us are looking at our discharge plan. Right? Give me some information that I can understand. So here are the options that we have when we discharge, right? You guys know most of these, so we're going to talk through them briefly. You're going to have a case manager. If you don't have a case manager when you discharge from the hospital, then they're called something else, right? A discharge planner or something. They're going to say, okay, you can go home now. That's what happened with my friend Virginia. She said they tried to send him home, and she said, what do you mean? And they said, well, he can go home. And she goes, no, he can't. And they said, why not? And she said, because I can't physically get him to the toilet by myself. And they went, oh. Well, that's a problem. And she said, you think? 
Well, do you have family, they said? Yes, they live in Dallas. He's a vice president of a major hospital there. He's not here to help his dad go to the toilet every three hours. So they said, well, he can go to a skilled nursing facility. And she said, that is not going to be okay with me. Now let's keep going. You can go home with no services or you can go home with in-home care. Home health. We know about home health. Or private duty care, right? People who are not healthcare people, but they do a lot of, of personal care for us, which is great. Great services. Or you can go home and you can travel to an outpatient rehab. So let's say you have knee surgery or rotator cuff surgery. You drive to the rehab and you do rehab there, right? Totally fine. If you can function by yourself at your house, right? If you have a spouse or a significant other or a family member who's staying with you, you probably do this. But if you live alone, you may need some more help for a while. So then they have things called inpatient rehabs. How many of you have been in an inpatient rehab by show of hands? Usually a lot of people. Okay, a few. Inpatient rehab center. Those are going to be um, primarily for physical therapy, right? They have other therapies too, occupational and so on. But here's the thing. Inpatient rehab, guess what? My friend uh, Virginia, her husband, that's where he wanted to go, and they had to do a pre-authorization for that. The hospital wanted him to leave, let's say, on a Tuesday, and they wanted 72 hours before they would agree to let him come. So if the hospital discharges him and he can't get his insurance to pay for 72 hours or more, who's paying in between? That's a good question, right? In their case, they did. Now, long-term acute care hospitals. Tracy's going to talk more about this in a minute. I'm going to let her do that. But this is something I learned in the course of, of my uncle. He wanted to go to rehab after his health care event. And so he did, and then I found out about a long-term acute care hospital, and I said, why didn't he go there? And I asked Tracy, I said, why didn't they discharge him to your hospital? Because it provides more care. He needed wound care. He, he had an IV antibiotic. He, had, he was in renal failure. He's diabetic. He has stage four prostate cancer that he's been getting chemo for that he can't get now. He has major back pain because of his surgeries. He has some pretty major issues, and she said, I don't know why they didn't discharge him to our hospital. And we didn't know to ask, because I didn't know it existed. How many of you until today didn't know there was such a thing as long-term care acute hospital? Raise your hand. Tracy, look around. Right? Here's the problem. We don't know all the options. Now, we're going to learn about this one today. Now, we all know what skilled nursing is, right? The, the skilled nursing that's usually affiliated with some sort of long-term care. So our communities here that are part of our education partnerships have skilled options at their communities. Here's the challenge. Guess what? I call Julie. Julie says, Nikki, let me find out. And they say, we don't have availability. And I call Jill out at Spanish Code and they say, we don't have availability. And then I call over at Bradford and they say, we don't have availability. Well, now what? So we have these friends that say, well, what would you choose if you can't go to one of those? I'm like, I don't know. Start calling around. And that's what your discharge planner's doing. <laughs> they're calling around. Did you know that? And guess which one they're going to recommend? The first one that has a bed. They are not going onto Medicare.gov to see if it's any good. They just need you out of their bed and into somebody else's. You guys get that? So the family's sitting in there, I'm just going to be really honest with you, 
most of the time waiting on the discharge planner to tell us where we're going to go. Where's mom going to go? Where's dad going to go? Where's husband? Where's wife going to go? Now, some adult children, we get phone calls from them, and they say, I'm trying to help mom find a place, or dad find a place. And guess what they're looking for? The cheapest. Yes, Ruth, very good. Cheapest, right? The one that's not going to cost us any money. So as long as Medicare will pay for it. Now, do you know how many hospital nights in the hospital you have to be in for skilled nursing to be paid for by Medicare? Three nights. So if you're not, if you're only in the hospital two nights, what happens? You go home because you're not going to pay eight or ten thousand dollars for that next thirty days of skilled. Nobody's going to pay that. Nobody wants to pay that. Now, if you have long-term care insurance, that's a whole different conversation, right? But guys, that's the problem: is that the skilled nursing thing? It, we go, oh well, that's our option. But you, it, your best option might be in Guthrie or Enid. I'm just saying, right? So this is not a bad news story, except to say that you may not need skilled nursing. In, in my friend Virginia's case, she said, what if we go to a uh, rehab? And in the rehab, the, the good news about that was they had $6,000. They could write a check and use it and go there. Most of us are not going to want to write a $6,000 check. Some of us couldn't. And so what do you do if you don't have the money? Okay, so besides that, now, let's say, for instance, you have a health event. Let's say it's a stroke or it's a major, just a major healthcare event. And you're coming out of any of those places we just named, whether it's home, whether it's a long-term care hospital, whether it's skilled nursing, and you can't take care of yourself, or the person who lives with you is not capable of taking care of you, then these are your options, right? So you have assisted living, potentially, if you qualify. Memory care, if you have more of cognitive issues, not as much physical issues. Or long-term care, which is the equivalent of skilled care, only it's long-term, okay? It's not exactly, but that's the way I relate it. So you're basically nursing care. Now, is there another option that you can think of besides those? Go ahead and write it down. You can move in with your kids, or your grandkids, or your neighbor, right? But really, I mean, I, those is, that's it. So well, what I'm trying to do in this conversation is if we can get people like Virginia's husband healthy and they don't have to go to skilled, right? That's really what we want, is we want to keep people out of skilled. We want to keep people at home if that's where they want to be, if possible. Assisted is great because it's more independent. But sometimes we can't. And part of the reason is because the, the healthcare community, uh, the, the medical people at the hospital, once you have, once they have exhausted their efforts with you, you got to go. And they got to get somebody else in there. Does that make sense? So what happens if you think about this stuff ahead of time? If you think today, you think, God forbid, but Nikki says that the statistic is eight surgeries per person on average. So let's say if you had to have a surgery, either an emergency surgery or a planned surgery, and after that surgery, do you know what you would do after that? How many of you right now, I don't show your hands because I already know the answer, would say to yourself, if I said, where are you going to go after you get out of the hospital, 99.9% .9 of you are going to say, home. That's our, that's our plan. 
And it's a good plan, by the way, until when? Until it's not. Until the anesthesia plays havoc on your system or until they nick an artery and they have to do an emergency uh, surgery or they do something unexpected happens, they do it or it happens, and we don't have a fallback plan. So the question is, just like you're creating an estate plan, just like you're creating all your legal documentation, just in case, like the tornado drill, right? Then it's the just in case, where would I want to go? What inpatient hospital, uh, rehab hospital would, would I want to go to? My uncle, he knows that if he goes to rehab, he wants to go to Mercy Rehab on Memorial. That's the one he likes over by Gallardia. He likes it, he knows it, he's comfortable with it, he's used to it, that's where he wants to go. As a family, we know that, okay? We know it because he told us. If we didn't know it, we would be looking for where we could get him in, right? So as a family, does your family know where you would want to go? If you had to go, even for a short-term period, to nursing, which is not a bad thing if you need it, where would you want to go? Where would you want to go? And how can you make that happen, right? So uh, obviously, our options are limited to what our insurance will pay for. Um, but if you're on Medicare, guess what? Um, they will pay for skilled, but guess what? You also may need pre-authorization depending on what plan you have if you're not on regular Medicare. Okay, lastly, and I'm gonna bring up our people. Last thing I wanna say on this is there are some supportive services, and I don't have these um, up on the slides, but on your handout down below, don't forget about hospice and palliative care. And we've done multiple seminars on that. So people that are, um, at in, they have a diagnosis that would indicate that hospice would make sense. So for instance, my uncle qualifies for hospice. He's got end-stage cancer. He's, he's got lots of issues. He is not ready for hospice. In his mind, he doesn't want hospice. He's eligible for it, um, palliative care services. And then also community resources. Those of you who have low vision, you heard us talk last month about new view for people with vision issues, therapies like that. The daily living centers are another option for people that if you're living with a family member and you just need some place to go during the day so that you have something to do but you're also getting some support and, and there's some supervision. This is really true for people with um, cognitive impairments, slight cognitive impairments or uh, other kinds of developmental problems then you've got the daily living centers is an option. It's also good for anybody. It doesn't have to be that. But my point is a lot of people don't like daily, the, the idea of a daycare for adults. But guess what? It's better than somebody sitting in the recliner watching Law and Order all day. <laughs> or God forbid Fox and Friends and CNN and MSNBC and whoever knows what. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Quit pointing at your spouses. Okay. All right. So I'm going to bring our folks up. Ben, uh, Tracy, you and Alan, come on up. And I'm going to open it up because I know that the, the content that we create as a group is way better than anything I can talk about today. So what I'm going to do is I have microphones for you guys. You can just switch those little switches on for me. Come on up here. And then I also have microphones for you guys. Now... What I would like for you to think about when you ask your question, when you ask your question, if it's a question, say I have a question and then ask your question. 
If you have a story to tell, uh, I would like for you to say, I have a very brief story to tell. <laughs> and then tell the brief story. But you have to use the microphone. And so Jake is going to hold the microphone for you, or Danielle will hold the microphone for you so that we can hear you. Okay? Does that sound all right? So what kind of question are you going to ask? Any question. What kind of story are you going to tell? A brief one. Okay, good. Got it. Are you ready? Okay, who's going first? All right, Karen. First one, always breaking the ice. All right. Jake, is that on? Yes. Okay. The case Hello. manager, discharge planners are making the plan. And like in the case of your friend, he's 90, he was totally functional before, and they say he's going here. What are your options for saying that's not good enough? Oh, that's a great question. All right. So I, I had a friend, her mother was 96, she felt right her hip and broke wrist. And this group of people that didn't know her decided that rehab would not have beneficial outcomes. And they sent her to a nursing home and she went downhill after that. Quick. Okay. All right, great question. Who wants to field it? Tracy, anybody, whoever feels equipped, go for it. Okay, well, at, um, at Select Specialty Hospital where I work is yeah, Long Term Acute Care Hospital, and we did send patients from our level of care to closer. Okay. Um, so at LTAC, we did send patients to skilled nursing or inpatient rehab, those kinds of things. So a lot of it is going to be based on um, the, the activities of daily living, is what we call it. You know, so explain that. Like, like how do they evaluate how, that? Like what you mentioned about yeah. your friend who was 90 and he was very active. You know, right. How active was um, this 96-year-old person? So they should take that into consideration. Um, and then also it's going to be based on the receiving facility because with post-acute care, which is what this is called, once you're in a regular acute care hospital, any kind of post-acute care is considered elective really and then the receiving facility can also decide whether that patient meets the qualifications for the, the, their level of care and they're going to look at all the different health aspects and they're going to decide whether it's something they think they can help the patient with. If not, then they probably won't accept the patient. So that's part of it. But um, if you feel strongly, then, then like what Nikki said before, you have to advocate for the patient, um, whether it's with a facility, with a, with a case manager to say, look, you know, you've only been with my mother for three days here. Let me tell you more about my mother. And explain that to the case manager. Um, and then hopefully that will um, enable that person to go out and look for some additional options. But then again, as we know, sometimes the um, insurance, if they're not on Medicare, the insurance company may de de decide that that patient is not worth sending. And that's rather unfortunate. So that's when you have to go through all the appeals and all that sort of thing too. You know, I was gonna say, you know, based on my observation about the, the, the level of capability prior to entering a hospital environment, I'm wondering would it make sense for us to all have pictures of ourselves doing what we do prior to going into the hospital. Seriously, the whole dancing pictures and whatnot. Virginia told me, she said, on her appeal from her son, which didn't end up working, what they did was they took pictures of her uh, her husband doing what he does that they had on her cell phone, and they sent those with their appeal. Because otherwise, they don't know that that person was sewing or that was singing or going on trips before they went into the hospital. They don't know that. Uh, ben, do you and Alan have anything you want to add to that or 
I'm always going to be the devil advocate. It's just my personality. I like him already. <laughs> um, your question was, well, part of what you said is they made her go. No, they didn't. We are in charge of our health care, and I am a very big advocate on that. They, a doctor or a hospital can only recommend to you, here's what we think should happen. They cannot literally force someone to do something. Back in November, I had to get a pacemaker all of a sudden. I was walking out because it was my choice whether or not I wanted that pacemaker or not, and I was disagreeing with six doctors who were in there. It's my decision, it's my health choice, it's my body. Until we came to an agreement is when I changed that. So a lot of times, and a lot of things that I've heard is that, well, they're making us do this and this and this. No, they're not. You're choosing to do what they're there, what they're recommending. A doctor and nurse, healthcare can only recommend to you with the, with the specialties that they have, I think we should listen to them. But if it's not something that you don't want to do, it doesn't fit your life, you have that decision to turn that down. Yeah. Now you may have to look for other alternatives and find your own money to pay for things. I'm not saying that. But when we make statements like they required, no, they didn't. My doctor's making me take these prescriptions. No, he's not. He's suggesting these prescriptions for you. So then it's your decision on what you want to do with your life. There may be consequences you need to know about, but ultimately it comes down to we make the decisions about our bodies. That's what I believe. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a great point. Uh, just from my perspective, because uh, you know I uh, sell these Medicare plans, Medicare supplement plans, Medicare Advantage plans, prescription drug plans, and you know I don't coordinate people's healthcare. That's like not my responsibility. That's either original Medicare to do that or the Advantage carrier. Um, and, and unfortunately, I do occasionally hear these like horror stories, kind of like you said, right. where someone maybe they, yeah they, maybe they do have an Advantage plan that's like network based, and the company offering their Advantage plan is responsible for coordinating that person's healthcare, like pointing them in the right direction. There's like certain clinics that are in network or out of network and things like that. Generally speaking, just from my personal experience, the way I do my business with like my customers, I never really have any of my customers that have like a situation like that bad, where they 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 get denied, they have to pay out of pocket or, or, or whatever. Occasionally, someone might call me, maybe they're on an advantage plan, they say, hey, my doctor didn't approve this uh, procedure or something. Usually, if they just push back once, uh, it'll get approved. You know, or the advantage carrier will will approve it, and they'll go ahead and like push it through or whatever. So sometimes you have to stick up for yourself. Yeah. And if something gets denied, or you can't go to a certain clinic, you always have options. But if you like file an appeal or whatever, I find that you know because the, the advantage carriers they have all this oversight by Medicare. So although Medicare is saying, okay, yes, you the advantage carrier, you're you're responsible for for Miss Smith or whatever, the advantage carriers still have all these like requirements that they have to meet. And they have to offer anything that Medi the original Medicare would offer. So they have all this oversight from Medicare. So they don't want Medicare breathing down their neck if they're just like denying people. Tracy, uh, Tracy's but, taking a deep breath. But, okay, but, so share, share your thoughts, yeah. But, but what he's saying and what you're speaking about on your story is an appeal. Right. There's something that I would do differently with the case that you were given. Okay. And uh, first of all, 
What the family says really mean it really doesn't help anything. Family's not a doctor. What Medicare and the Medicare Advantage plans are going to do is listen to the doctor. He's the expert. So if you want the family talking to the insurance company, it's not going to do anything. Because all they're going to say is they're going, well, they're not the doctor, they don't know any. The family needs to get a hold of that doctor and say, hey, we, this is what we need to convince that doctor. The doctor is the one who has to convince the Advantage plan or Medicare that this is necessary. They're only going to listen to the doctor. Doing an appeal is wonderful, but you're going to get turned down. Guaranteed it. They're going to get turned down. What you also want to do in a case like this is go ahead and call Medicare and file a complaint against that Advantage plan. The reason why that, when you do the appeal, Medicare is not involved. It's just between you and that Advantage plan, that insur private insurance company. If you do a complaint with Medicare, now Medicare is going to get involved and investigate that and make sure the Advantage plan is doing exactly what they should be doing. And there was a recent study that just came out this past year where Advantage plans, about 30 to 40%, we're denying people, just flat denying them. Because if, you, if you, I can deny you, I'm saving money. That's how they make money. So get Medicare involved, file a complaint through Medicare, let Medicare investigate, make sure the Advantage plan is doing the right thing. That's what I would do. Great, perfect. Tracy? So, you know, I dealt with this on a daily basis. And certain Medicare replacement plans are worse than others. So I'm not gonna name names at all. But just do your research about that, I'll say that. But the American Hospital Association recently did a white paper that talked about these Medicare Advantage plans and how they were denying patients and it was um, impacting patient safety and increasing the cost of health care. And you know, if I had if I, I put two identical patients next to each other, patient A is Medicare, I can bring them today if they meet qualifications and they've been in the hospital for the three midnights. This patient was on a Medicare replacement plan, and we knew, okay, well, we have this patient referral today. It's gonna to be at least three days before we get a reply from many of the um, insurance companies. Then we're gonna to have to do the appeal. Then the doctor's gonna to have to do the peer-to-peer. -peer. So, and then one of them, the one that's the worst, actually said to me, well, it has to be an equal physician. So when you're in the hospital, you have a hospitalist who's managing all of your care. Right, and they, general care. Right, and they might be working with a pulmonologist and a cardiologist and all of the different Apologists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but now you might have a medical director with the insurance company who's none of those specialties and then this this intermediary person said to me, Well, but it can't be the hospitalist too or the you know, hospitalist doing it, it has to be the pulmonologist if they're you know pulmonologist. Oh, I'm like, okay. What? Right. That makes absolutely no sense. So I just found that they would change rules on me a lot about how that was gonna happen. And then you talk about Maximus, it could take up to six months on Maximus. And you know, it's ridiculous. And so I just don't understand why the Medicare replacement plans don't treat Medicare patients the exact same, because they're Medicare replacement. Now, I do think there's a very good place for the Medicare replacement plans, but I just caution people, you know, just make that your secondary, keep Medicare as your primary. Um, if you think you're going to need post-acute care. Now, who ever thinks they're going to need post-acute care? I want you to talk about that. Yeah. So the, the room, uh, by a show of hands, a majority of us didn't know what that is. 
So I'm going to move you up just okay. a little bit further so they can see you. Talk about what post-acute hospital inpatient care is like you're talking about, and then your outpatient services. Okay. Well, so that. most of the time, you know, you think about going to a hospital. You go to Baptist or Mercy or St. Anthony's, and you think, as soon as uh, whatever I'm going to have done, I'm going home. But that's not always the case. And so with long-term acute care hospitals, what that is for is for patients who have been in ICU or inter intermediate or step-down level care for the three midnights, but require more medical care. So LTACs do a lot of ventilator management and weaning, and that's a big deal. If you've been on a vent, you want to come off of that vent, and LTACs specialize in that sort of care. Um, wound care, long-term IV antibiotics, um, dialysis, all of these different medical things that happen to someone. They, we also did you know, PT and OT, or physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, but that's very limited. And the reason for that is if you've been in the hospital for a while or you're really critical, you just become very weak, debilitated, and you're not able to get up and around. And so an LTAC will do about 30 minutes of therapy a day just to even help you sit up, or raise your hand, any of those kind of things to get you strong enough to get you to the next level of care. So, that, so LTACs actually release a lot of patients to skilled nursing and inpatient rehab um, or home with home health, all of those kind of things. Um, and so a typical stay for an LTAC patient is 25 days. And so again, it's getting to, to through all of those medical issues that you may have, like maybe you had a stroke, but you still have some um, issues that you have to deal with on the medical side of things, and then you go to inpatient rehab. Um, and so it's a really, really good bridge between those things. And a lot of people don't know about LTAC. I actually, I've worked in acute care side for about 15 years before I decided to join LTAC. I didn't know what I didn't know about LTAC. So a lot of people don't know about it. Um, and also, um, people what is here, LTAC? LTAC is long-term acute care. Thank you. Okay? So people hear LTAC and they think long-term care. And so they think nursing home. Not the same. Right. Uh, it's long-term acute care hospital is what an LTAC is. It is an actual hospital that we just don't do things like surgery, you know, and lots of imaging and all those kind of things. The Tracy, where is Select located? Um, Select is on Northwest 56th Street, uh, in between um, Baptist Hospital and what used to be Deaconess, which is now Texas Portland Avenue. Um, it's right there in between the Hefner Parkway and Portland, and it's a 72-bed freestanding hospital. It's the largest one in the area. Um, there's also um, AMG, um, and it's located within Mercy. So that's another um, option for some LTACs. And Select has that too, where it's hospital within a hospital. So at Mercy, if you're there in ICU and you wanted to go to LTAC, you could just go right down the hallway. And then if you need to go back to acute care, you could. And then there's another one called PAM, which is downtown, stands for post-acute medical. And there's one over in Midwest City. And so those are the options for um, LTAC in the Oklahoma City area. Perfect. So guys, I think, again, and Tracy can't say this because she's biased, obviously, but I'm going to tell you that I did my little research thing uh, online, and it's hard to find, but not all hospitals are created equal, not all long-term care acute facilities are equal, and not all skilled nursing is equal, so do your research. Yeah, we were very proud of our quality scores, so look at that, compare quality scores for different hospitals, ask. If you were asked by a liaison, you know, a hospital, I want, I want to bring your family member to my LTAC, ask about quality scores. If you're on a ventilator, ask about what is your vent weaning rate? How many patients actually do you get off a vent? You know, you want to know those sort of things. That's really important. And another thing, uh, I'm going to um, add this, this is something you said earlier, when you're, when you're looking at hospitals to compare and you're looking at um, 
customer ratings and that kind of thing. And if you have a good experience with any sort of healthcare, do a Google review, do a Facebook review, right. say something positive because nine out of 10 people who have a good experience will never ever do, do that. And it's the negative ones that get on there. And right. like there were people that I knew who they were and they would just say the most outlandish things, but it's a HIPAA violation. You know, all know what that is. You know, I can't reveal patient information publicly. It's a HIPAA violation if we respond. And so you may see on a healthcare side, someone like from compliance will say, would you, you know, I'd like to hear more about your experience. That's why they have to take it offline. So be very careful about looking at some of the negative reviews and try to find as many balanced, you know, sometimes someone does have a bad experience, it happens. And sometimes people are just crazy. And, and they write a stuff online they, just because they can't. Whether they even went to the hospital or I've seen my share of crazy, I'll <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> so, one other thing I'm going to say. Um, if you have a complaint, be as nice about it as you possibly can, and you're going to get further. But right. definitely raise those issues. Yeah. You know, if, if you're having a problem with a nurse, let the, the nurse manager or the chief nursing officer know, because sometimes it's a personality conflict, right. and we just need to switch out those people. But I was just reading today, I get these healthcare alerts. It said that two nurses per hour are assaulted in hospitals. And you may have started seeing those signs around hospitals and clinics now that it's a felony to, and I actually was ministering on a call when it happened with a family member who was very upset with a doctor and assaulted her. And I had to, to have the police and all, I mean, it was crazy. But people get so just emotional over it. And it is an emotional situation. It's very tough when, when you're in, you know, healthcare setting and things aren't going the way you want. But the nicer you can be, the more that administration is going to be all over you yes. and make sure that you're getting what you want. And it's very tempting to get all heated and yell and scream. Yeah. Get more fries and honey. And, yeah. and then also the last I, thing I'm going to say. I'd like to say something about that too. Yeah. <laughs> we're on the phone all day long. And before I did, I'm retired and, and I've done this for the last 40 years. But I was in higher ed for my career working with uh, uh, college age kids and adults. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I never knew the 65 and older group. I never knew <laughs> what the what uh, the level of language <laughs> that I am hearing every day. I was brought up by a Pentecostal Southern Baptist mother and the language I hear. What she's saying is so true. If we are there, there's three of us in Oklahoma to serve all of Oklahoma when we answer the phone. And the language that we hear, and all we are there, there to do is to help you as best we can. We are so serious. We want to help to get the problem. But we are cussed at, yelled at, you did this. No, I didn't. I'm just here to add. I didn't send you anything. I didn't do nothing to you, but I want to help you. What we do now in our area is that if you call me a name, I'm, I simply say I'm sorry. I'm, I can't speak to someone that's going to be abusive to me, so I'm going to have to hang up this phone now. But if you call me back in five minutes and if you get me, I'll be glad. To, to help you. Go take a Xanax and call me back. Yeah, because this yeah. is really serious and I want to help people, but I will not allow people to abuse me or my staff. Well, and I'm going to guess that too, a lot of times, Alan, this is the, the people in this room are saying, I would never do that, but I'm going to tell you sometimes you may never do it, but maybe your adult child that's calling. Right, well, I think, I think we all, it's okay to be mad at the situation, 
that we understand. But, but don't take it out on people because of the old saying, you know, you get more done, catch more flies with sugar than vinegar. So if you're, and we even educate people if we can't help you when we say, okay, you need to call your insurance company, but here's how we want you to talk. We yeah. really try to educate people on how to answer Using the right phrases. So it really does, what she, what she was saying is so true. We right. really need to respect and talk to each other better. Agreed, 100%. Okay, Karen, did that cover your question? All right, who back here has the mic? Yeah, Curtis. I just wanted to share just sort of a, a quick story. A brief story. A brief awesome. story. And this is not Medicare, obviously. I'm way too young for Medicare. But um, <laughs> private insurance, I was facing a, a procedure that could either be elective or not elective. And insurance initially rejected it. Uh, I did the appeal process. <laughs> Tracy touched on it. The peer-to-peer -peer review, one would assume happens as a, uh, as a customary practice. It does not. So I'm on the phone um, uh, advocating for myself, and the, the term peer-to-peer -peer review was brought up, and I said, well, what, what needs to happen for that, you know, what needs to occur for that to happen? And the person on the other end of the phone said, you need to request it. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be a proactive request, and I said, well, how do I do that, expecting there to be some sort of form? And I said, you just ask. I said, okay, so I'm asking. The phone call, the, the, the doctor representing the, my, my physician contacted the insurance company's uh, physician, case physician. They had the conversation and it was approved within an hour. So it's a, it's a matter of making sure, taking, making no assumptions about things happening as a normal course of business, but ensuring that the things that need to happen um, are requested and, and put into motion. So I noticed, I just, uh, Curtis, to your point, this wasn't regular in terms of Medicare, but online, I did a bunch of Googling online. I found a lot of forms on, or not forms, but documents online that talked about how to file an appeal and what to do and what are the steps. I would have that in your hot little hands anytime you go for a medical visit, just so that you know, if I'm told no, who do I call, what do I call, and what is it called? What peer-to-peer -peer review? I wouldn't have known that, right? So now you know, write it down, and you'll know to ask for that question. Yeah, Danielle, who you got there? All right. Okay, uh, Eunice Curry last month or a couple months ago said that she went in with a broken arm and she heard the doctor saying, oh, no, this is an Advantage plan. Okay, so you're saying, so what are my choices, Advantage plan or because I'm going to change. I'm going to get off the Advantage plan. So do I need to get Blue Cross and Blue Shield, something like that? That is an Advantage plan. Medicare is either straight Medicare or it's Blue Cross Advantage, not Healthcare Advantage Humanity. And, and some of these are really good. So every insurance, Blue Cross is, is, every insurance is an Advantage plan? No, no, no. So let's, let's make sure we're in question. Yeah. 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 So like whenever someone goes on Medicare, like being A and B, you have A and B, you have full Medicare, you're paying for Medicare. Generally speaking, that person's gonna go down one of two paths of like additional coverage. They're either gonna stay on original Medicare and they're gonna get a Medicare supplement plan. Those typically have, those have like a monthly premium associated with them, it might be like a hundred something dollars per month. Or they sign up for Medicare Advantage. Generally speaking, many of the Advantage plans have zero dollar monthly premiums, believe it or not. Um, so it's really just that main fork. It's just like what, how much, how much or how little coverage do they want? Can they afford a hundred something dollar premium for a supplement plan or not? Um, and then they'll go from there. And kind of like I said earlier, like the company that's offering you the Advantage plan 
Medicare sort of lets that company now kind of coordinate your health care. Medicare almost sort of like washes their hands of you yeah. uh, uh, to some degree and says, okay, uh, company X offering advantage to someone, you are now sort of responsible for this person. Versus if you have Medicare with a supplement plan, the supplement plan is just specifically designed to just offset Medicare's co-pays and deductibles in like 20%. So the company offering you your supplement plan is not coordinating your health care in any way. You're still just under full original Medicare. Medicare's calling the shots, and that's it. So Ben, hang on, hang on. Let me let me let me ask you a question real quick. Now you said there's a fork in the road. People pick Medicare, straight Medicare, or Band. But if someone wants to go back to original Medicare, there's some caveats to that. Yeah. So you can only do that certain times throughout the year, and uh, it kind of depends on your situation. But generally speaking, if you do want to go from Advantage back to original Medicare with a supplement plan. Um, if you wanted the supplement plan and you're leaving Advantage, you're probably gonna have to go through underwriting. So they're gonna ask you like yes or no health questions. They're gonna look at your- uh, like You have history. to qualify. You have to qualify. Yeah. You know, they're gonna look at your That's prescription drug like history, now. things like that. So you, there may be a, a little hurdle there. You know? So for some people, go ahead, Tracy. I was just gonna, you'd be the best one to address this, but you can exhaust your Medicare plan. You do get a certain number of days and all that. You wanna talk about that? About Medicare exhaust? Exhaust. Yes. <laughs> uh, like once you use up your lifetime days and yeah, you have lifetime reserve yeah. days and you have copay days and you have skilled nursing yeah. days, they all fall under that. Talk about that. Honestly, that's pretty rare that someone would like exhaust their Medicare benefits. That's I mean, maybe you've seen that. I'm not saying it doesn't yeah, happen. She works in long-term yeah, acute yeah, care. I'm not saying that doesn't it's, happen. It's your frequent flyers. You have people who go in and out I, of the hospital because you have to it resets. You have to be out of the hospital a certain amount of time before your days reset. But if you're just in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, you can exhaust your Medicare. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you get like, it's like up to 150 days like inpatient. And then you have these like 60 lifetime additional inpatient days that they give you. you the supplement plans will actually give you an additional 365 days of, of, of uh, coverage, I believe. So that is possible. Um, just, just from my experience, that's extremely rare. I, I've never had someone call me say, then I ran out of hospital. I've never had that. We, we, I know it does happen. We do grow Use your uh, mic, Alan. Alan, 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 Alan. Alan, use your mic. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. I'm German, okay? My last name is Neixel. If you know what that means in German, it means pop noxious loudmouth. So you but yes, we get that all the time where people had exhausted. I didn't understand the term you were using. Who have used up all their hospital leave? That's why the hospitals are really trying to push you out because they know Medicare only gives you so many uh, lifetime days. If you're on a supplemental plan, they will provide you with some additional plans. And like you was saying, if you're on a Medicare Advantage plan and you think, ah, oh, this isn't working for me, and I'm going to go back to original Medicare and get a supplemental plan. Yeah, the plans, the only time you have guaranteed issue rights is when you first start Medicare. For those first six months, you can select a Medicare supplemental plan. They cannot look at your past medical records. They can ask you the questions, but they cannot use it against you. They have to accept you. They can't put you at a higher rate. But if you were on another uh, Advantage plan or something, and you want to now go back and get a supplemental plan, they do have that right to ask those questions and they can use them against you. But I I tell people all the time, don't let that bother you, don't let that bother you. My mother's 92, the stroke, she had a heart attack two weeks ago and everything else. We just changed her supplemental plan. 
They didn't ask a single question. And I've had a 105-year-old lady coming from California to Oklahoma. Didn't ask her a single question. There's about 60 companies. So the first one, what you don't like, you just keep going down the next one. That's all you gotta do. Uh, one other thing I wanna add about the going back from Advantage to uh, maybe a supplement plan, there's kind of like a little known rule called a Medicare Advantage trial right period. Um, where it's where uh, if you have, have gotten an Advantage plan and if it's within like your first year of you ever having Advantage and if for whatever reason you don't like it, Medicare will basically let you get uh, a redo, you get like an oopsie, where they will let you go back on Medicare and then you get guaranteed acceptance back into a supplement plan. It's called Medicare Advantage trial. And that's just the first time. If it's, well, if it's within your first year of ever trying out Medicare Advantage, even if you've had Medicare for a long time. Okay. Yeah, but if, if you have been on original Medicare for maybe five years, and then you go, I think I want to take an Advantage plan now, you still have the year trial only if you had a supplemental plan before. You can go back, but you have to go back to the same supplemental plan within that year. That's the only way. So guys, are you? Didn't have a supplemental plan. You cannot get off of it. Are y'all hearing how confusing this is? Okay, just to be really clear, that's why that's why I said you have you have to sit down with someone because we're speaking in generalities. You're going to be speaking in very specifics, and your very specifics need to be shared with your insurance agent with Medicare advisors, counselors, when you talk to them, so that they know exactly what you're dealing with. Okay, I had a question back here. Yes. It's a comment, a very yes. favorable comment. Years ago, I was in the hospital for, and they said heart surgery, and so the surgeon came in, Dr. John Perry, great, great, great doctor, and he uh, was telling me about it, and I said, do you mind if I just record this so I can remember what you said today to Bob the next day before the surgery? He said, absolutely not. So he said, well, here, let me just, so he took the recorder from me and spoke directly into the, re into the recorder, and I had a record then to listen to and listen to and listen to, and I was prepared for surgery, and it just made all the difference in the world. So an investment, if you're going to go in the hospital, and at $39.95 at the Walmart to get a, a recorder, it would be a great investment for you. That's brilliant. Yeah. And you also have one on your smartphone. Matt, Chris, there we go. So if you don't, you have on your smartphone, if you have an iPhone or an Android or any of the major phones, not a flip phone, I am not talking about flip phones. <laughs> if you have a smartphone, it does have a recorder already as part of the package. So uh, hang on, I'm gonna make sure who has the mics. Okay, one here and one here. I'm gonna get uh, this one first and then I'll get Mr. Frazee, you'll probably have the last question. Yes, ma'am. No, that's okay. Uh, that question you said I get, I Oh, said, no. He does no, no. He he said, "Do you mind if I record?" And he said, "No, I don't mind." <coughs> oh, well, I asked my doctor. He wouldn't let me. Okay, so if you ask your doctor if you can record them and they say no, you need to get up and walk out of their office and flip them the bird on the way out and tell them you're getting a new doctor because that's bull. B U L L. It's my room, I can say that, but I don't disagree. Okay, Mr. Frazee, the only person more bold than I am in the room has the last question. Um, like you said, this is a very complicated thing. Something that we cannot 
fully understand today. Who can I sit down face to face with a person who's honest, who isn't trying to sell me something, who I can discuss my options with? Wonderful question. So I just, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have these people in the room. So uh, so Ben is a agent. He sells insurance. I work for myself. I'm an independent insurance broker. Literally all I do is Medicare. I go out and get independently contracted with all these different insurance carriers, like all the major carriers that offer supplement plans, advantage plans, drug plans. I have customers all across the country. Oklahoma's obviously a huge market for me. I, I live in Tulsa. Um, so, I mean, that, that's like where I'm coming from, but like an actual like Medicare. Right. Like, that's more you know, Allen. You know, yeah. yeah. But, but I feel like, and not to cut you off, but I feel like in addition to me like selling people plans, I actually don't really like sales. I'm a teacher at heart. I love teaching people things. So a majority of what I do is just teach people about just how to get signed up for Medicare. People call me all the time. They're like, hey, Ben, I'm turning 65. How do I get Medicare? What, what do I need to do? You know, I don't work for Medicare. I don't sell them just their Medicare coverage or whatever. So that's a huge part of what I do, and I really like doing that. And then from there, it gravitates towards, you know, they start asking, well, Ben, what's a supplement plan? What's Advantage? Uh, why is Joe Namath on TV all day long? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, so just got in trouble. Oh, really? So, so that's like what I'm doing every day. Yeah, I'm like earning a yeah. living, selling, but I love Medicare. My parents are on Medicare. Um, you know, so let me say this about Ben real quick, because you guys need to know there are lots of great agents out there. Ben's one of them. There are some great agents out there. They're just like any industry, just like real estate, whatever. There are some great ones and there are some really bad ones. And there are some that are not, they're bad because because uh, they're bad agents. They just are trying to sell you their product and move on. So there is a lot of turnover in the industry too. So these agents, they come and they go. It's it's crazy, right. you know. And then people are like, they, they feel lost because they had somebody sign them up and then that person they disappeared. Or whatever, yeah. You know? yeah. So that's why I say find somebody credible who's been around a while, who's doing this for a living, and who's an educator. Uh, Alan and what they do at the Medicare Assistance uh, Program is through the state. He has flyers over there at his table. This is what they do, guys. They have people on the phones, and they will meet in person if you need them to. But it's it's designed to educate you so that you go out and make those decisions uh, for yourself. So, Mr. Frazee, that's who I would call first. That would be my first line. Okay, we need to wrap up, so just really quick. Uh, big self-employed people do not have, oh, sorry. self-employed people do not have Medicare, is that correct? If they don't pay Social Security? Oh, like if they didn't pay their 40 quarters, like during their working life? During their work, their life, if they did not pay into Social Security. Well, if they were self-employed, they were still probably paying taxes into the, like Medicare taxes and things like that. So they probably paid into the well, system. We were self-employed and we still had to pay all yeah, that. Yeah. You just don't pay it through an employer. You have yeah. to pay it separately. I, I, I pay Social Security tax and Medicare yeah. tax right now. But, but if somebody did not, then they can't take advantage of any of this, correct? Well, if, 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 you don't, if you don't meet those quarters, like you can still get Part A, but it's like $400 something yeah, every month. Pay. Yeah. 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 Okay. The other thing about Part A is it doesn't pay the physician. So that's going to impact which facilities will accept you as a patient if the doctor knows not to get paid. So you need to have Part B for that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we took a very confusing topic and we confused you even more. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so but here's, here's what they're going to do. These guys are going to go back over. Um, Alan is going to be over here with Ben at this first table. 
Tracy is going to be right across the way over here next to her wonderful husband, Curtis, at Arvest. And they're going to take your questions for a little while, so feel free to do that. So can we give them a round of applause? parting words to share before you guys get up. Thank you, Ben. Um, so we have evaluation forms on the table. Those of you who are new to the room, please know that we take these very seriously. The first blank on your evaluation form asks uh, if, you, if there was anything you'd like to share that you took away from today that was a, a good learning experience. The second blank asks do you have any unanswered questions or need more information? If you will write in, if you don't have time to hang out today and talk to these guys, but you want somebody to contact you, write it in there, and then put your information at the bottom, and we will forward that on to them after the event, and somebody will reach out to you, either from our team and connect you or directly from them. There are three books I'm going to recommend today, three books. You might want to write these down somewhere other than on your evaluation because on your evaluation you're going to turn it in to Jake and Naomi back here. The first one is called, I've got some good news and some bad news, you're old. <laughs> I didn't write the book, so don't take it out on me. The doctor who wrote it is Dr. Bernstein. It's an excellent book. He's a geriatrician. He wrote the book for, uh, by means of just trying to help uncomplicate some of the things we talked about today. The second one, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System. Dr. David Wilcox, he is a, 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 actually a practicing nurse. Um, and I think he went back and got his PhD in a related uh, field. Then Dr. Atul Gawande, who's an MD surgeon, I mentioned him earlier in that book. That book doesn't sound like what it reads about. It's, it sounds like it should be an end-of-life book, right? But it's not. It's a very technical book uh, that also incorporates some of the emotions of going through end-of-life. So I would recommend you pick up those three books. That, that second book, the one in the middle, is my most recent read. And he has some great tips in there for navigating the healthcare system and for even like what they talked about, you know, how to talk to the nurses and how nurses uh, react when you're nasty to them. Um, if you're wondering why you pushed the button and nobody came, it may not be them. It may be you. So, you know, um, just taper that a little bit. Uh, even if you don't feel good, it's not their fault. So, uh, did you all learn something today? Yes. All right, so do me a favor. When you leave here today, um, do something with what you learned, right? Do a little research, do a little reading, talk to somebody. Um, and what I'd also like to ask, that's two favors, do something. And the second one is invite somebody who has not been before to the Senior Living Truth Series next month. Kind of like bring a friend to church next week. We'll bring a friend to the Truth Series next month, too. Give yourselves a hand for being here today.